Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. If you want to know something about Rhode Island's Latino community, ask Marta Martinez. Marta is the executive director of Rhode Island Latino Arts and the founder of the Latino Oral History Project of Rhode Island. She spent decades collecting the stories of Spanish-speaking pioneers, leaders, and more. That oral history collection is now the inspiration behind La Broa, a new play at Trinity Rep. She's here to talk about the play and her work capturing the history of Rhode Island's Latino community. Thank you for joining me, Marta. Hi, Ed. Good to be here. So before we talk about the play, let's back up and discuss your oral history project. Tell me about the moment you decided to collect stories in the Latino community. It was uh, kind of a long moment. I was a student at Providence College, and I pretty much never left campus. It was just many reasons. One of them was transportation. And I left for almost 10 years, and then I came back, found myself for the first time in, in the community, so to speak, and I wanted to know who the Mexicans are more than anything, because that's my heritage. Of all places, I went to Broad Street. That's where I was told I should go, and that's where it started. And is that where you met Doña Fefa? That's where I eventually, so I walked up and down looking for Mexican food, tacos, mainly tortillas, something to cook, tortillas and chile, and uh, the right kind of chile, and I couldn't find it. But I kept running into these bodegas, and inside there was yuca and, and just food that I was not familiar with. So I spent some more time out there. I closed the, uh, the office on Fridays, and I just hung out on Broad Street, and eventually she came in to buy food, and my friend was with me. And she said, you have to meet this woman. And I knew I had, because everybody I spoke to, for the most part, her name popped up a lot. So Doña Fefa's name was always mentioned. So she, was she the first interview for the oral history that you began to, uh, to work on? She was, yeah. And it was an instinct, because I have a journalism background. Right. I carried a little tape recorder just out of habit, and after... Uh, having heard people talk about her and, and ending up in her kitchen table, she started to tell her story. I said, oh, wait a minute. I just, if you don't mind, I'll put this out. And at the time, I wasn't considering myself an oral historian. Right, right. It was just something told me that I had to capture her story. And I'm so glad I did. That story, it still still lives. I have that little micro cassette, and that's what sparked the play. Tell us more about her. She was here with her husband, Tony, and they had two kids. And when she arrived to Rhode Island, she was pregnant. So she had a third child here. They were the first Dominican family in Rhode mm -hmm. Island. And the same thing that I did, they were looking for their own foods. And uh, they didn't have it, so they opened a bodega. And I heard she used to go to New York 
every week to to get Dominican food. Is that right? Right. Of course, there was nothing here that that she could find. Not even cilantro. I tell people that there was aguacates. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine life without an avocado. <laughs> so uh, all those simple foods that we take for granted now, she had to go to New York and buy them all. And am I right that she didn't just bring food back with her? She started bringing people back with her, right? She would talk about Rhode Island. You know, they'd ask her, like, where is this Rhode Island place? And she just raved about it. She called it a paradise, un paraíso. Mm -hmm. And so people would hop in the car with her, and they would come to Rhode Island to check it out. And they agreed. They loved it here. So they would go back and move their families or move themselves. And that happened often. Every weekend, she'd go and come back with one or two more people. So she pretty much created, she built, she planted the seed. Wow. So her house kind of became the hub. Her house for, became for the hub. community. She found a, a house on Chester Street. She had other locations, but she found a triple-decker, very traditional Rhode Island. When she brought people with her, she would put them up, have them sleep on every floor, and she, she gave them pretty much instructions. You have 60 days, I will help you, and you can stay here 60 days and by at the end of 60 days, you should have a job, you should have your kids in school, you should be pretty, pretty much independent. And she made every effort to make sure that they, they had their uh, place to live. My kids are older now, but when I, they were younger, I used to bring them to the Providence Children's Museum. And isn't her market replicated there? It is, and it's, it was something that I put together when I went. That's, that's kind of reflects my project. It's, I created something that didn't exist and that I thought, should exist, and especially at, uh, by the time I created the bodega at the Children's Museum, there were second and third generation Dominicans and Latinos in Rhode Island, and I wanted them to feel like they were learning a piece of history while playing. Yep, yep. And what did you find so inspiring about her story? Her resilience, her strength, her, her energy. She just was nonstop, and everybody I spoke to even to this day, they have connections to her. And when I officially started just moving along and asking others, she the reason I, I kind of, the project grew is because she kept saying to me, you need to speak this to this person and that person. And because uh, there's not just Dominicans here, there's others that, that were here in the early days. But they all, everything pointed to her. Eventually, I went to Central Falls and I asked Colombian said the same question, where did you shop when you wanted food? And they all said this bodega in Providence. Huh called Befa's Market. And just to spell it out, why is it important to capture these stories and, and tell them to other generations? Well, that's the other thing. After I met Doña Fefa, I wanted to kind of get to know more about the Latino community and the, just where did, when did it start? I wanted to kind of verify. There was nothing. I went to the libraries. I went to the historical society, and really there was nothing. I found a few newspaper articles that that painted a negative picture of Latinos. It, it was mostly who was arrested and talked about issues of welfare and those kinds of things. And I said that that's not, those are not the Latinos that I knew. There had to be a, a more positive news or more, more positive stories. So I just went out and started collecting the stories. And I realized in talking to the families, when I was interviewing some of the parents or grandparents, the kids were like, you know, we don't, hear these stories at school. And I did ask, and I looked into it, and the public schools teach Rhode Island history in fourth grade. And I looked at some of the books, and there was very little about Latino history, about people of color. 
it was maybe a couple of pages. And it was Martin Luther King for the African-Americans, Cesar Chavez for the Latinos. And that was it. So I thought, that's not right. I wanted to see what I could do to create a, a narrative. I noticed in your book that you point out that until the 50s, there was no evidence of significant numbers of Latinos anywhere in Rhode Island. Can you contrast that to the Latino population we see today uh, growing so quickly in Rhode Island? Well, I also uh, realized when I moved here in the 90s, I came right at the right time. A lot happened. In 92 is when we elected our first Latina to the state legislator. That was um, Anastasia Williams. And I was right. in the middle of that. And so as I did my oral history and, it, and I kind of looked at across the decades, how long it took, the struggles, the the many times that Latinos ran for office and never won, and the challenges that they had and, and the system and how they had to realize that in order to get ahead, you had to kind of play the game, right? Aside from that, they still had barriers. They were not citizens. A lot of them didn't speak English, and they were dealing with the everyday struggles. And by now, you know, the, the idea of electing uh, a Latina, a woman, to the legislature, it seems that now we have so many, and it's really exciting to, to see the difference between now and 2020, 2024, all the long list of Latinos and Latinas that are have been elected. And who, who though, were some of the big trailblazers over the years, like Mayor Tavares, I imagine? Yeah, he was the first mayor, the first Latino that was elected as mayor. Uh, quickly behind him was James Diosa, who was elected in Central Falls. Going back to the 80s, so I think the trailblazers were those who, who threw their hats in. Just what they told me is they just felt the only power that they had is if they were in the political world. And so there was a Puerto Rican who ran in 1980, very oh. first Latino who ran oh, for office. Oh, who is that now? His name is Manuel Rivera. Okay. And he is a practicing lawyer. He uh, is from Rhode Island. He was from Puerto Rico. We had a Domin Dominican who ran for office. And those are the people you're going to learn about when you go see the play. We'll have more of our conversation with Marta Martinez after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. How did an oral history project like this make its way onto the stage at Trinity Rep? Well, I have been working with Trinity Rep for, it's going to be about six years now, just trying to promote Latino, bilingual Latino, Spanish language theater. So my organization, Rhode Island Latino Arts, we promote the arts from, I tell people from A to Z, we do everything. And it's very organic. I just started it basically for my own needs to look for my culture and also hearing people tell me how, what they miss, their food, dance, music, their language. And so many of the programs that we offer are just kind of fall in place, and it has to do with the artists who come to me, saying we'd love to do drumming, we want to do Puerto Rican dance. And I had actors coming to me, and I, I'm not an artist, so I really don't know the first thing about theater. And Trinity came and wanted to... to 
to do more with the Latino community. They were looking at the demographics and they wanted to open doors to the Latino community. And their idea was to put a play on stage that took place in Spain. And I thought, no, that there's got to be more than that. So we, we joined partnerships and we were just six years of discussions. We created Teatro en el Verano, a summer performance of bilingual plays. And the actors finally had a home. They had a place to, to do their practice. Out of that, I kept saying, you know, if you, we want people to come to your season stage. We need to do more. And one day uh, they came up to me and said, we have an idea. We'd love to do your oral histories wow. into a play. And so that's that's where it was born. For those who haven't tuned into the play yet, give us a little idea of what it's all about. Well, I think the most fun part is that it's it, it has become interactive. And I've learned from the Trinity staff that they're not used to audiences actually jumping on the stage like that. The jumping on stage? They're jumping. There's music. Latinos, when the music comes out, you get up and dance. It's just a natural instinct. And some of them have jumped on the stage to, to dance along and to sing along. That's awesome. Right. So, so expect it to be a fun play. It's bilingual. It's pretty much in both languages. There are going to be some scenes that are just in Spanish. But you get the gist so I tried jumping on stage at Hamilton, and they did not appreciate that. <laughs> no, but it is welcome. It's welcome, right? It's welcome. But yeah. the, uh, the other thing is that if this were a regular play, you know, with non-Latinos in it, I think people would be taken aback. But the, the actors on stage are all – it's an all-Latino cast, mm -hmm. and they, they, uh, they expect it. I think when it doesn't happen, they, they feel like, what's what? going on Let here? Down. We're right. not we're doing our harder. job. <laughs> That's awesome. What's it like for members of the local Latino community to see their own stories on stage? Oh, my goodness. The, the, the first few days before opening, they have dress rehearsals, and they open it up to the public. One of those days was pay what you can, and uh, I didn't go to those. I wanted to wait till opening night, but my uh, social media started to blow up. People were tagging me, and there were some really beautiful comments, very long very sincere, heartfelt reactions to it. I got two phone calls from some of the people that are in the play, and they were just so excited. They said they, they were not so much raving at the idea that their stories were on stage, but they were talking about the fact that now they're grandchildren. Uh, one thing that I've learned, and I think we all do, we don't sit down and talk to our own family members. And I tell people, especially having done oral histories, you just need to ask more questions. Mm. And don't wait until it's too late. And too late sometimes is when, you know, they're too elderly to remember. Just talk to your family members. Right. One in particular said, you know, now I'm going to sit down and talk to my grandson. Wow. I'm going to bring him to the play and let him watch. And also going to sit down and tell him my story. What did you think when you first saw a character portraying you? A Providence College student with journalistic interest on stage. That was that was interesting. I really did not expect that. So you were surprised. When I you, was you, shocked when you went to the theater. You didn't know surprised. you were going to be in it. So I knew that something was up because they invited me to the rehearsals because I was very adamant. One thing about this project that I pointed out and I I stood up and spoke to the cast is like you are not depicting characters on piece of paper. These are real people. And that's what worried me is that these are real people's lives and these people are still alive because, you know, except for Doña Fefa and one other gentleman, they're all alive and they're going to want to come and see the play. 
And so these are real lives, and I think I made them nervous. <laughs> you better um, get it right. Yeah. As much as nervous as I was. Yeah, and yeah. Um, the playwright uh, spent a lot of time with me because I told him I really want to make sure that it's accurate. But he never told me that it was going to be that accurate. And when I saw it and saw myself, I mean, I'm on the opening scene. It was my jaw dropped. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's very moving. What do you hope people take away from seeing the play at Trinity Rep? I just hope that, you know, the, the idea of storytelling and story sharing and listening, and I think that everybody has a story to tell, and uh, I hope more Latinos come forward and tell their story. For future generations, I, I, when I talk to young people, I, I think, I tell them, just think 15 years from now, people are going to look back and listen to your story, and what you do, you may take for granted. I mean, look at me, everything I did with this project, I just did it because I love doing it. And now people are telling me that I created this wonderful thing and it, I just never imagined. So so what's next for you in, in this project? Well, I hope that uh, a lot more people come forward. But uh, most importantly, I'm looking for young people to start collecting their own stories, to learn more about oral history in the context of historical movements. You hope the young people start collecting stories themselves, or do you want to hear their stories? Or? Both. Both. I'd love to hear their stories, but I think they should, they need to. I mean, I've got to pass down the torch, too. Yes. Yeah. And do you still carry a tape recorder? I do. Well, Marta, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great. La Broa is at Trinity Rep Theater until February 18th. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall with help from Carlos Munoz and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all anytime and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.